from WHQR Public Media, this is The Newsroom. Welcome, I'm Ben Schachman. Thank you for joining us. On today's show, we'll learn more about a new nonprofit journalism outfit, the Border Belt Independent, which is delivering investigative reporting to local newsrooms. We'll talk about what inspired the project and why it's important. And later in the program, a deep dive into the complex world of beach renourishment, that is, keeping our region's beaches from eroding into the ocean. It's a process with a lot of moving parts, and to torture the metaphor a little bit, these are parts that don't always move in unison and sometimes grind to a halt. But first, it's time to talk politics. So my guests today are Will Connect, chairman of the New Hanover County Republican Party. Will, thanks for being with us. Great to be with you, Ben. Thank you. And Andre Brown, chair of the New Hanover County Democratic Party. Thanks for having me on, Ben. And just a disclosure note here at the top, Andre Brown is on the WHQR board of directors, but there's no fear or favor here. So let's start with what it is you guys do, say, during an election campaign like the municipal election campaign we're coming up to right now. Uh, Andre, let's start with you. Okay. So first, we were waiting to, until after the, the board of elections closed uh, the last day of filing. And so first, we were determining who filed. So we have, I think, five Democratic candidates for the city council race, and we have two Dems vying for um, mayor. So we are putting together a plan like for canvassing and phone banking over the next several weeks. Uh, we are working to um, reach out to folks who may not have um, voted in the 2020 election. Uh, we are also uh, working to put together some fundraisers and make sure that the issues that the community is concerned about are going to be addressed by these um, candidates. And Will, what about you? So first of all, I'd like to congratulate and thank Andre Brown for being in studio with me. I don't think there are many counties in the state where the chair of the Democrat Party and the Republican Party in today's environment could be uh, collegial and uh, discussing issues together. So I want to I want to thank you for being here. And Ben, thanks for the invite and allowing us to come. So I, th- I see my role as the chairman of the party as sort of um, the CEO of an organization that has community impact as as its uh, as its thrust. And so during this election cycle, uh, my job prior to the uh, actual filing that uh, Mr. Brown uh, referred to uh, was to help recruit and, and coach individuals who were considering a run. Uh, for the city council, answer any questions they had, maybe put them in touch with former candidates to get a sense of what it was like. And now, since there are only three candidates uh, for city council uh, in the city and there are three seats open, we're uh, all guns blaring uh, to support those candidates. We see the candidates as the heroes of our party. We are the supporting staff that is to organize the precincts and, and help get the vote out. But uh, our job is to be in the background in doing that and trumpet and support them. And so that's what our, our task becomes as we move forward to the general in November. Uh, we are looking to raise some money to support those candidates. And we are looking to build out our precinct organization uh, to rival what Andre has in the Democrat organization, a phenomenal uh, grassroots uh, team that uh, they have developed over the years. We're playing a little catch up on that, but we're working to catch up. One of the questions I wanted to ask is, you know, this is a technically it's a nonpartisan election, but clearly there are you know Democratic candidates and Republican candidates, uh, and there are a lot of unaffiliated voters. This is something we hear, and New Hanover County is might be the, the you know purplest place I've ever lived. 
Um, so how do you guys think about the unaffiliated population in terms of getting people engaged, getting people interested? Um, Andre, I'll start with you here. Yeah, that's a good question, Ben. So, you know, there are a couple of theories um, or viewpoints on this. Uh, mine personally, I think there's over 60,000 unaffiliated voters in the county. And uh, I believe that most unaffiliated voters, they either vote you know, Republican or Democrat, and there's or Democratic Party, or for the Democratic Party. And I think there's like a small percentage, around maybe three to four percent, who actually swing back and forth. So for us, we would want to concentrate on those vote on those unaffiliated voters who are likely to vote for the Democratic candidate. Well, what about you guys? Yeah, I think very similar. Again, the unaffiliated voter uh, uh, role. Uh, dwarfs both uh, the Democrat and Republican Party uh, voter role in New Hanover County. And first of all, that's it's a wake-up call for me and my role. There's things that we are not communicating well enough as a party that we need to get better to communicate what we stand for, uh, to maybe bring some of those conservatives who've been a little bit fed up, to be honest with you, and have gone unaffiliated. But I think it also speaks to a bigger trend that we see both, you know, in the county, but also statewide and nationally. Uh, many of the new voters, younger voters, are, are passionate about ideas and principles and policies and, and much less tied to a, poli- you know, a political party. And so, again, it, it's for us communicating who we are as a party, what we stand for, and uh, what principles we believe in. At the end of the day, the unaffiliated voter will make the uh, the final uh, uh, call, and uh, we recognize that. And we're going to let the uh, more liberal unaffiliated vote know that the vote has been postponed till December. Okay. I'm not, just kidding. Not true, everyone. I'm just kidding. Yeah, I'm I, just kidding. I do have to interject with a fact check. That is, that is not great. That's a joke. Uh, um, that's propaganda. Uh, that's an election humor. Um, we don't... The news, I thought the newsroom was the only place where we had election jokes. But. Can I follow up on one? On yeah, please. I, please do. I was not discussed. So I think last, like in 2019, I think there was over, there was less than 16,000 voters who turned out. So, of course, part of like the Democratic strategy is to get more people out to the polls and excited uh, for sure. But, you know, think about that. I think we have, I think, is it 86,000, something like that, um, registered voters yeah. in the city of Wilmington. And such a small percentage that turn out. It's a little bit disheartening, uh, to be completely honest, when a middling fraction of the eligible voting population actually shows up at the polls. I think a key point in that is how important every vote is. Uh, in 2019, if we remember the third place candidate who was elected to the city council beat the fourth place candidate by four votes. Four votes is all that determined who a sitting member on our city council. That was uh, Paul Lawler and Neil Anderson. I it was, yeah. absolutely. Incredible. Went to recount and, and again, to Andre's point, it is really important for us to raise the tenor of the discussion and debate and talk about, as the chairs in our roles, the honor and privilege it is as an American to freely go to the ballot box and to freely voice our opinions by who we vote for. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I was thinking as well as speaking, we want to work on educating the electorate to come out. Uh, about the candidates, about the issues that they're running on. So it's important for everyone to feel as though their vote counts and that they their vote can make a difference and make their community more equitable. Yeah. You know, and maybe this is, I'm seeing this with the lens of being a kid, but I, I remember the parties being more 
more simply defined in the 80s and 90s. I know the Big Ten is a democratic phrase, but the tent for on both sides seems bigger. How do you guys deal with that, with you know, keeping your arms around a, a bigger group of people? Uh, Andre, do you want to go first? Uh, I'm going this first. This is a tough okay. one. Yeah, this is, a t- this is the toughest one so far. So th- thanks, Ben, uh, early on. So for me, you know, I, I've been, I was elected back in April of this year. So I, I guess I, I would like people to understand that we have more in common within the party than we, we are different. So it's important for, you know, I, I think it's important for us to focus on those areas where we can build consensus. So you're right. We do have, you know, far, you know, hard left, um, more progressive um, wing of the party and a more, you know, moderate one. And I feel as though if those person, most of those persons get in the same room and they go into the same voting booth, they are voting the exact same way on most issues. So I try, you know, I do my best, try my best to uh, really stay, be fair. Um, and, you know, that's, you know, you get, I get some pushback from, you know, different sides of the party. And I, and I respect the passion um, of, you know, of everyone. Everyone's politics is personal. But so I, I try not to get down into the, the fray, but may also maintain the integrity of the party. And there are, are issues that, you know, that we, you know, do make an opinion. We make it known and make a statement in regards to it. Um, but overall, I just, you know, hopefully everyone can see that hey, let's, let's work together. I think the Democratic Party, especially on the national level, um, came together. I mean, even our county turned their county blue in uh, 2020 for Joe Biden. And so we're hoping to duplicate that down ballot and um, here at the municipal election coming up. Yeah, I think great answer. And, and absolutely. It's leadership focusing on the commonality and, and focusing on the real objective. You know, Andre and I have talked off mic and, and when we've been together in the past. Uh, we're, personally, we're not enemies, right? We disagree on issues. We disagree on principles. But that doesn't make either of us a bad person. And again, it's the greatness of America that we can have that discussion. It's the same thing in our party. Not everybody is going to agree with me, and that's okay. Because at the end of the day, probably in our homes, there aren't many of us who agree on everything, even in our homes. And to keep us focused on, A, the mission, and for me, the mission is, you know, focusing on communicating conservative principles and electing Republican candidates who live by those principles and keeping the noise separate. I think that's part of the challenge that he and I both face as we have this disparate uh, group, even in our own parties. And that's what we've tried to do. There are non-negotiables, sure. But there are a lot of things that are uh, up for discussion and debate. And and can I jump in here? So, and Will and I have discussed this before, how we could have a civil discourse. I mean, not just within our, our parties, but, you know, between them as, as well. I remember growing up as a kid, just watching, I don't know, like the Bill Donahue show. And, <laughs> you know, you would have people in the same audience who would have, you know, you know, different opinions and felt really strongly about them, but they were in the same room and you got to hear both sides and they could communicate without like physically, I guess, attacking one another in that, at least in that moment. And so I'm just wondering, like, I think we need more of that uh, to have issues and so that people can kind of articulate the reasons why they feel a certain, w- certain way. And maybe you know, we don't agree, but okay, at least we could walk away and say, okay, well, I understand why this person feels this way. 
There are definitely examples, and we don't have to look far to find them, where someone suggests uh, a liberal policy, and it's automatically socialism that will lead to you know someone's grandmother dying in a ditch, or a conservative policy that is automatically labeled as white supremacy. Uh, when these are policy issues, you know that you two could probably sit down and disagree about civilly, but the temperature underneath these debates is so high, the conversations get so intense and so passionate that they they fall apart. In a, in a campaign, you know, from your guys' point of view, how do you keep that from happening? How can you try and right that ship? Well, I mean, I think it would depend on the course the situation. I think knowing enough about that issue, I think, because having a really good understanding of whatever policy it may be, and then you you can help like educate folks. Okay, okay, I understand. You know what you're saying, like for instance, but here's why I feel x way about it and i think it's responsible for a candidate to do so and you know and there's times to turn down the temperature uh, i understand the reasons for it to foment and get people excited and that's you know all part of politics but if it if we go too far in another direction it can become dangerous and you know no one gains from it yeah i think at the same time you know andre and i both represent roughly fifty thousand voters, you know, Democrats and Republicans, plus or minus. We are the chairs, right? But, you know, it's not an oligarchy. We can do our best to bring the temperature down, even with our own candidates, right? But at the end of the day, there is great passion, especially locally, because the local issues, the local policies, I mean, what we see at the school board, they affect the everyday lives of, you know, thousands and thousands of residents. And of course, parents are going to be very passionate on both sides of that school issue. Again, uh, we hope that people are able to discuss and debate issues passionately, but not lead into personal attack. And I think that's the difference we're seeing today. I had the uh, honor when I was a junior in high school to be a page in the U.S. House of Representatives. And this was in the heyday of Tip O'Neill, the Speaker of the House, and Ronald Reagan in the White House. I don't think anyone would disagree from a policy standpoint. These two men were diametrically opposed. But at the end of the day, I think Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan liked each other. And because they were able to be civil personally, they accomplished great things. And, and that's what we're trying to do. And I see that in my friend Andre Brown, and I see that in myself. We can set that example and do our best. But at the end of the day, we're not in charge. <laughs> yeah. One of the last things I wanted to talk about, and this goes directly to what you guys are talking about, is social media. Now, I've never run a campaign, and I've, uh, but I've reported on a lot of them, and I can see the amazing power of social media. But at the same time, I think it's pretty clear that uh, we've opened Pandora's box with, uh, with social media. So is there a needle to thread there? I think in modern-day politics, you have to thread that needle and do both. Uh, for us, we speak to our base. On social media. I don't think in social media that we're going to change many minds. I don't think we're going to change many perceptions because it's easy to hide behind a keyboard and lash out or get very personal very quickly. But it's a great tool to rally our base and that's what we need to do because we need the 50,000 plus Republicans to get to the ballot box and we will use that but for those unaffiliated voters that you, you, know, you referenced early and we discussed earlier, Ben, uh, we believe that's still grassroots, that's one-on-one, -on -one, that's you know, a phone call, a door knock, 
you know, a, a invite, a, a coffee. So we, we're going we're gonna to do both, and, and we believe there's a different strategy for each. But, you know, one of the messages we, we continue to hammer with our, you know, internal team of, you know, Republican, you know, passionate uh, patriots that we call that, you know, are our volunteer base is the time, you know, there's a time for social media, but don't, be, don't hide behind it. We need your shoe leather. We need your voices. We need your, your donations. We need you involved in the campaigns. Well, I'm going to start with a history, a history lesson for me, if that's okay. Yeah, go for it. So Barack Obama, his campaign back in 2008, that was probably, in my opinion, the first one where there was this huge like social media like like plan and it was executed so well, and you know, it, you know Obama was Obama was ugh, Obama was able to reach out to different voters. You know, you get the email, dear Andre, I'm like thanks, he, he knew my name. You know, the messaging was great. And so I felt that started us, I feel, in politics on down this path. And then, you know, after eight years, you know, Donald Trump is elected, but also used social media also to help lift him um, to the uh, presidency um, as well. And so I, I agree with a lot of the points that Will just made. Yes, to reach out to our base, yes, we, we use social media. We have some parameters in place for our, our pages now. Um, and yeah, I, the genie's out of the bottle. I mean, you know, like, like you said earlier, I don't think there's any way of going back. And social media can be a great tool to be used to you know, bring attention to a certain cause. My primary concern is the amount of misinformation or disinformation that is on social media and is not checked. Um, I guess it's mis is it misinformation or disinformation? Make sure Probably both. Yeah, there's both. There's there's bad information and then disinformation is like misinformation is like I heard from a friend, uh, it wasn't accurate, but I posted it on Facebook anyway because that's Facebook. And then there's disinformation where you've got the Russians trying to convince black communities in the eighties that AIDS was created in a lab to wipe out their population. That's like actively maliciously wrong. Okay. Well, I was conflating the two, but thanks for explaining the difference. But that is what I'm primarily concerned about. So someone states something on social media, it's true, without asking, okay, what was your source for that information? You know what I mean? And that, for me, that's the danger. And I don't know, you know how we can correct that. I know that the federal government is trying to put some policies in place to hold you know, Twitter, Facebook more accountable, but it may be too late. I mean, I don't, I'm not sure what can be done at this moment other than we need more people to think independently and to be careful or selective in the you know in what they read and the information that they receive and the sources of it so that's you know primarily where i guess i'm concerned i i think it is reasonable to be concerned i think i think that's going to be one of the great debates of our next decade well good luck to both of you good luck to your candidates and uh I just want to say I, I'm very grateful that you two uh, were willing to come in today and have this conversation. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks. Thank you, Ben. Thanks, Ben. We'll connect. Andrew Brown, thank you so much. Coming up later on the show, we head back to the 80s for the origins of our current beach renourishment predicament. But first, after the break, Les High and Sarah Nagam from the Border Belt Independent join us to talk about their investigative journalism project. You're listening to The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. Please stay with us.
Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman. If you hang out with journalists long enough, you're likely to hear the story of Bell, California, a small city of about 35,000 people in Los Angeles County. Back in the late 2000s, this place was pretty much a free-for-all. It was rampantly corrupt, with artificially inflated property tax, fraud, government officials making some of, if not the highest salaries in the nation, despite working in a pretty small place. Yes, it really was that bad, and if you haven't heard of it, I just Google it. Eventually, though, a bombshell report from the Los Angeles Times put some much-needed sunshine on this graft and mismanagement. The mayor, four council members, top administrators, they were all arrested. Uh, several served prison time and were ordered to pay millions of dollars in restitution. So, hey, that's a win for the LA Times, a win for good reporters everywhere. But at the same time, you've got to be asking, how the hell did it get so bad? The simple answer is, there was no local newsroom to cover it. Bell was in a news desert. That idea, the news desert, that's what scholars like Penny Abernathy write about, and her work is great, but it's also pretty sobering. It's also part of the inspiration for the Border Belt Independent, a new nonprofit organization that aims to deliver free investigative reporting to local newsrooms. Joining me now are Les High, founder of The Independent and longtime publisher of The Whiteville News Reporter, and Sarah Nagum, the newly hired editor at The Independent. Guys, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Les, I want to start with you. Uh, tell us a little bit about Border Belt Independent. So the Border Belt Independent is uh, something that I've been thinking about for a while. And it started with Penny Abernathy's study on news deserts and, um, you know, we're losing our newspapers. It's a pretty tough business model. And so we um, know that newspapers uh, still can do meetings, commissioners, school board, that type of thing. But what they've lost is, is the capacity to do in-depth investigative stories. And begin to think about how that might work for my newspaper in Whiteville, and then begin to think about it on a regional basis and looked at Scotland, Robeson, um, Columbus, which is Whiteville, and Bladen counties. All four of those counties are on the border belt, thus the name of South Carolina. A lot of poverty, a lot of kids having problems, a lot of crime education issues, um, you know, the whole gamut, health. And so we had a conversation with... Um, the KB Reynolds Charitable Trust, and uh, they just don't throw money at problems. They have people on the ground. We had conversations, and it, it evolved to a point where we said, okay, so we've, we know we've got these problems, but what if there's nobody to tell that story? How, how can we fix them? And that was kind of the impetus that, that got us thinking about this, the news deserts, the threats to our democracy, the need to tell those stories. There's another component, too, uh, which is to try to help newspapers survive. Um, a community that loses its newspaper is in real trouble, and uh, there's not accountability, there, there's no watchdog. So um, it's really twofold to tell important stories, to try to find solutions to those problems, but to also see if we can get uh, newspapers and credible journalism to survive, because when you have a news desert, um, I mean, we all kind of know what fills that vacuum, and it's a pretty dark space, and it's a real threat to our democracy. Absolutely. So... You recently brought on board uh, Sarah Nagum. Sarah, tell me how you got involved with this. I think I saw the listing on journalismjobs.com, and, and I saw it, and it's like the heavens opened up. I said, this is exactly the kind of journalism I wanted to do really since I was a kid. 
Um, you know, when I dreamed of going to journalism school, you know, I, I wanted to make a difference as a journalist to tell stories that that really need to be told and be a voice for people um, whose voices often aren't heard. And and I think that's exactly our goal with Border Belt is there there are so many important stories to be told in that part of the state, which often, you know, coming from Raleigh, I've spent more than a decade in Raleigh now, um, this part of the state is often forgotten and and really just not talked about nearly as much as it should be. So how does this work logistically? How do you guys sort of provide this, this investigative journalism for the papers that you have these relationships with? We, uh, we are an online uh, publication, so to speak. As soon as we publish a story, it's available for our partners with these six newspapers. So there's the Tabor City paper, my paper in Whiteful, the papers in uh, Blade and Scotland Robinson, and then also the Pine Needle, which is a student newspaper at UNC Pembroke, which we really hope to, to have a partnership with. But as soon as we publish those stories, it's available for them to use free. We'll send them a high-res photo where they can use it in print or online. We're not uh, competitors. We're, we're collaborators and partners. It didn't used to be that way, Ben. I mean, back, back in the day, you probably know this, it, it, it was the Wild West. We protected our sources. It was hand-to-hand combat for, for stories among journalists. Now collaboration is such a big deal. And, and across platforms, too. Uh, not just newspapers with newspapers, but all platforms. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and and you know of, of what you speak because this newspaper is running your blood, right? Yeah. Yeah, so my grandfather bought the News Reporter in 1938. It actually won the Pulitzer Prize in 1953 uh, for reporting on the Ku Klux Klan uh, with the Tabor City paper. And um, it was a, a really frightening time. I mean, they carried guns. Uh, the the reporters uh, carried guns. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was that that level. And uh, the real problem, Ben, is that the KKK had infiltrated the police. And so, uh, like, the Grand Dragon in Fair, was, was the Fair Bluff police chief. Uh, the Wifel police chief was a member of the Klan, but he was also my grandfather's friend and protector. So if something bad was going to happen, he, he would let him know. And I've been there 36 years. I've never worked anywhere else. That was kind of my destiny, and, <laughs> and it's been a really great ride. And, and so if, if we can make this happen, Ben, where we can provide investigative reporting for these four counties and still have the newspapers that have to do the crime and the, the sports and all that, which is essential, the meetings, you know, can we replicate this in other rural counties of North Carolina or potentially the, the, the nation? And I, I hope that we can. I hope you can, too. I'm really glad the focus here is on investigative journalism because it's probably the most important thing you can do as a journalist. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, it's, it's kind of poorly understood. Um, I think some people, you know, they'll read a report of, that came from a press release. And, you know, I'll see in the comment section, great investigative reporting. And I, I want to pull my hair out and go, no, that's not, that's not what that is. Sarah, what do you, how do you think about investigative reporting and, and what kind of stories do you look for in that vein? Yeah, you know, I, I think old school investigative reporting, you know, you, you think of uh, middle-aged guys smoking in the newsroom, <laughs> right, making endless phone calls. Uh, investigative journalism has certainly evolved over the years. You know, I, I think it doesn't always have to be this 5,000-word expose. Sometimes it's um, a quick 500-word story saying, hey, you know, this money was misspent. <laughs> you know, like Les said, often um, smaller newspapers just don't have time to dig deep into budgets and, and things like that. So it doesn't always have to be this this huge thing. It, it, it's really about holding powerful people accountable. 
So what's next for you guys? You've you've got the setup, uh, you've got the the grant funding, which is incredible, and now you've got an editor. What's next? And a, and a really good one at, at, at that um, is to add reporters. You know, it's a big area, and uh, Robinson County has its own set of problems. Bladen's got its own set of problems, and so it's just to add reporting capacity to do more collaboration. I mean, there, there are just so many problems to tackle, and one of our goals is uh, to kind of talk about investigative reporting. We also want to do solutions reporting. So if we find a problem, we're just not going to, you know, throw a hatchet at it and say, all right, and then we're done. We want to try to find solutions to problems, and I, I think that's um, will certainly be a goal of ours going forward. You know, that's often missing because, uh, you know, just to be completely candid, sometimes the fun of being a journalist is the gotcha moment, and it takes a lot of follow-through, right, to figure out, what comes after the gotcha? Absolutely. And, you know, I, I've been working on a story about access to mental health care in, in this part of the state. And I have literally spent the past two days looking at reports online. It, it's incredibly time consuming. There have got to be journalists out there doing this kind of work. Well, uh, I think it's it's an awesome idea. Um, I wish you guys the best of luck. Like you said, I hope this is this idea that can go nationwide because, you know, I know we need it. So Les High, Sarah Nagam, thank you so much for coming by. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. All right. It's time for a quick break, but when we come back, it's a deep dive into the world of beach renourishment with Preston Lennon from Port City Daily. You're listening to The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. I hope you'll stay with us. Don't worry, you didn't accidentally switch to your meditation app. You're still listening to the newsroom. And I'm Ben Schachman, here at Wrightsville Beach. It's beautiful. The broad, bright, expanse of sand is a major part of what it means to live and do business here in Wilmington, even if the beach is outside of city limits. But if Mother Nature had her way, much of this sand could have long ago washed away. Keeping that from happening takes a lot of effort and a lot of money. We're talking about beach renourishment. Many people only think about this every three or four years when massive lines of pipe appear on the beach as dredging ships stationed offshore or in nearby inlets pump tons of sand onto Wrightsville, Carolina, and Curie beaches. Even then, for many, it's a given. Of course someone is maintaining the beaches. They're intrinsic to the local economy, the local government, our local social life. But the process is complicated. It's carried out under a decades-old law that needs to be constantly tweaked to adjust for modern financing. And there's also bureaucratic steps and environmental concerns, which sometimes clash with the economic imperatives of maintaining our beaches. To help explain how all of this works, and more recently why it hasn't worked, is Preston Lennon from Port City Daily. Preston, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks so much, Ben. And we're going to get into the saga of beach nourishment. Uh, this is a story you've kind of owned since the beginning of the year. So let's go back then to January, uh, when kind of a bombshell fell on the local beach communities. Uh, tell us what happened. 
these projects were originally authorized in uh, the mid-80s to go a little bit farther back than this January. Uh, they're 50-year projects, right? So they're going through the 2030s, except uh, by 2020, most of the money for the Wrightsville Beach, Carolina Beach projects had been spent up. So there's sort of a process that happens in Washington, D.C., where our congressman is able to lift the funding cap. Uh, they are able to get more money for these projects. Uh, it's it's recognized by the federal government. It's signed into law in the Water Resources Development Act of 2020, and that's sort of seen as the victory for these projects. Well, a couple weeks later, the United States Army Corps of Engineers, which oversees all these projects across the nation, they come out with their federal work plan. It does not mention any of the three beach towns in New Hanover County, and that's kind of seen as a dead end at that point, because if the Army Corps doesn't recognize your project, uh, it can't really be touched. And so that's how that uh, started. That was a surprise to local leaders who had thought they had secured a victory uh, that previous year. Yeah, I was going to ask about that, because uh, Congressman David Rouser, who's, who every year when he runs, or every other year when he runs for re-election, touts this, his you know uh, consistent ability to get this funding for Carolina Beach, Curie Beach, and Riceville Beach. And, and we're talking... Uh, you know, tens of millions of dollars. It's sort of become a foregone conclusion. Um, well, of course, more funding will come. You know, I, I, I've never heard local leaders really worry about it. So how did they react after this news kind of broke? Uh, so surprise, shock, and anger uh, is their emotions because you have gone through the process, you've done everything you need to do, and then all of a sudden uh, people in administrative agencies, not even politicians, presumably have made these giant decisions that uh, affect our coastal towns. And um, it, it's still unknown uh, what step of the process the projects for our local beaches were sort of de-recognized from the priorities. Um, from the people I talked to, my understanding is that it's not like the law gets signed at the end of the year and then the Corps begins working on the plan. The Corps is working on this plan for weeks and months before it's even signed. So there was some sort of a disconnect between what we thought was going to happen and the the end result. So basically since January, local officials have had to get creative and see if there is a sort of a special way that we can keep these projects on track because these are, these are consequential projects that uh, mean a lot to both the locals and the tourists that visit uh, all three of our beach towns every year. Yeah, and important to the county, too, because they get quite a bit of money, both from sales tax and room occupancy tax. That's big as well. Yeah, it's, it's, a, lot of, it's a lot of money. Uh, and so one of the characters that kind of emerges in this series of stories uh, is Tim Buckland, a former Star News reporter who now works for the county. Uh, he's well, What does Tim do? T- Tim's job, from my understanding, is to I- express the needs and wishes of New Hanover County to people across uh, the government at both the state and the federal level. So uh, Tim has been getting uh, names that we we all know to sign on to New Hanover County's quest to get this figured out. We've uh, we've seen both of North Carolina senators, Senator uh, Burr and Tillis, you know, write letters to the Army Corps. Of course, Rouser has been involved, you know, on his own accord for a long time now. We've had Governor Cooper get in the mix here, send a letter to the Army Corps. And so basically, I think uh, Tim is trying to, he, he well, as he says it, everyone is in lockstep. You've got your state, federal, politicians, and then uh, 
not to mention our federal lobbyists, uh, all kind of working on this issue uh, in the public sphere and behind the scenes to see what can be done. All right. So in March, this is like you know a month and a half after uh, the bad news broke, uh, there was sort of a moment where they, they thought they might be able to fix this. This was an episode of Creativity where uh, the Wilmington District of the United States Army Corps, it's not just Wilmington, there's plenty of territories across sort of the southeast region here. Uh, There's a project in Dare County, uh, from my understanding, that was said to be able to go under budget, according to Rouser. Millions of dollars from this project could have been directed to our coastal storm damage reduction projects, which is sort of the the official term for beach nourishment. And um, all this required was sort of bureaucratic sign-offs at uh, levels up the the food chain of the Army Corps. Those have yet to come. We're still waiting on uh, someone to review it, sign it off, et cetera. It's, it's, again, it's unclear. Uh, David Rouser actually got the chance to question the Assistant Secretary of the United States Army Corps in a congressional hearing. Didn't get much uh, other than they recognize the Army Corps does the consequence of these projects. But beyond that, uh, it's, it's still looking unlikely that that route is going to be able to keep us on schedule. Gotcha. And now for like the latest twist in this story. Um, this has to do with the difference in interpretation of law between the Trump administration and the current Biden administration. Um, give us give us the 30,000 foot view of what's happening here. Yeah. So if things weren't complicated enough, this definitely throws another wrench into the plan. This problem is stems around what's called the Coastal Barrier Resources Act. This is a Ronald Reagan era law in the early 80s that the goal of which is to discourage development and disturbance of protected barrier island land with federal dollars. This included what we call beach nourishment. So uh, restricting the use of federal funds for these projects. Uh, Wrightsville Beach, Carolina Beach have been able to long make use of an exception in this law for what's called non-structural projects, basically because uh, they are reinforcing dunes and berms on the sand rather than installing metal man-made structures. They are able to do what this law on its face prevents, which is taking sand from within the coastal barrier resource system and moving it out of the coastal barrier resource system. And to explain that a little bit more, uh, Masonboro Inlet, uh, south of Wrightsville Beach, that is a protected area under this Reagan-era law. Uh, through this exception, they're allowed to dredge sand from that area. They call it borrowing sand. It's placed on Wrightsville Beach. That happens every four years. Over time, that sand is said to migrate back down toward the sea inlet. It's a self-replenishing cycle and they're able to draw from it uh, time after time, and that's how they've been doing it uh, since the 80s. And it's the exact same process on Carolina Beach. Carolina Beach Inlet is uh, to the north of that beach. They take sand from there every uh, three years in that case. It is put on the sand of Wrightsville Beach, migrates back to the inlet. They dredge from it again three years later. This is how it's uh, been done since... The 1980s, and just to note, uh, Curie Beach has always historically used a, a borrow site off in the ocean, which is not protected under the Coastal Barrier Resources Act like the Masonboro Inlet and Carolina Beach Inlet are. So they're sort of um, playing their own game. They're not affected by this right now. So 
that's the background. That's what the law does. Uh, and here's sort of the politics of it. Uh, in 1994, uh, Bill Clinton's Department of the Interior came out and they said, well, we don't really want you to do this anymore. We have read the law. Our interpretation is that you shouldn't be taking Cobra sand outside of the Cobra zones. And, uh, you know, a couple of years went by, and then our local Wilmington District Army Corps actually wrote their own interpretation of the law in 1998. They said, well, this is environmentally sound. We agree with the way we've been doing it. We're going to, uh, you know, continue to make it work. And our beaches went with that interpretation. You know, they followed the one that benefited uh, kind of their ends there. And a, a quick interjection here. I, you know, it seems to me that one of the issues is that uh, having this sort of self-replenishing cycle of uh, it's not just convenient. It's probably less expensive than dredging from out in the ocean and bringing it in. I'm not an expert at this, but it seems like that would be the case. I'm also not an environmental expert, but what I've been told by very trustworthy local officials on this is uh, you're absolutely right. It's way cheaper to dredge sand next door to you than it is to dredge sand out in the ocean. And uh, the other factor there is is um, when you have this sort of replenishing borrow site right next door to your turf, uh, you're dredging the same couple acres over and over and over again. The environmental impacts are limited to that area. When you dredge out in the ocean, you have to pick a new 120 acres each time you dredge every cycle. So that adds up and, uh, uh, and you know, more, there's consequences that way. So, uh, you know, th it, we kind of uh, followed this uh, precedent that our local Army Corps district was able to set with us from 1998. That was uh, followed until uh, 2019. And this was around the time when uh, they realized that the money was running out, right, for the 50-year cycle we had the money through 2035 but here is 2019 now and it's it's almost gone because you know you're predicting in the 80s what you're going to need in 50 years that's a tough game yeah that's 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 fair so uh, everyone's sort of looking at this and they you know they have to formalize this right because you're going to uh, the federal government channels and you're saying hey we need to uh, lift the funding cap for this you you need to make sure that what you're doing is legal so uh, David Rouser uh, got together with uh, some other politicians, including a, a representative from New Jersey. They uh, made a pitch to the, uh, or asked or asked in a letter, rather, of the Trump administration's Department of Interior. They said, you know, is it your understanding that we can do this? Uh, only a couple days later, the Interior Department came back and said, yes, it is our understanding you can do this. So... You know, the rest is history from there. They Rouser gets the uh, funding cap lifted. Uh, we get more money recognized by the federal government. And then in January 2021, everything's thrown into a little bit of disarray with the uh, Army Corps' work plan. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Newsroom from WHQR Public Media. My guest is Preston Lennon, and he's taken us through the complicated process of beach renourishment. So up until this point, the, the real battles had been lifting the funding cap, making sure that this COBRA law wasn't going to prevent them from dredging the sand. So what has changed under the Biden administration? Uh, yeah, so the, the Biden administration's interpretation of the Coastal Barrier Resources Act is 
what it has historically been uh, since uh, excluding 2019 and 2020 when the Trump administration had its own interpretation. So that the Biden ad- administration's interpretation is that uh, if you have sand in a uh, protected area, area for part of the coastal barrier resources system, and just uh, to note that includes both Mason Borough and Carolina Beach Inlet, uh, you cannot use federal money to take sand out of there and put it somewhere that is not in the coastal barrier resources system. Uh, and, and again, that goes back to the law's sort of uh, original intentions, which is to discourage development within these protected areas. So, you know, that's what they're saying. And uh, if if that sort of is enforced to the fullest extent, that would make it really, really hard to continue the beach renourishment projects as they have been performed. And how does how has the sort of local group of advocates for beach renourishment, you know, the county, the beach towns, Mr. Buckland, how have they responded to this? Yeah, so first and foremost, uh, they have two main points, which is that, uh, first of all, dredging sand from within the Cobra zones uh, is cheaper than having to go out into the ocean, which is what we'd have to do if uh, this Biden interpretation is enforced. So it's cheaper, and they say uh, you have less environmental consequences dredging locally than you do out in the ocean. I'm told by Leighton Bedsell, uh, the shore protection coordinator, that uh, on our home turf here, you have this self-replenishing cycle, but if you want to go miles out into the ocean, dredge sand that way, you're getting into the migratory pathways of humpback whales. You're uh, messing with the movements of staging female sea turtles. So these are real problems that exist uh, out in the ocean. You're uh, messing up a new 100-plus acre site each time you've got a dredge, whereas locally you've got this site of, uh, in Masonboro Inlet's case, it's around 40 acres that's there. They can disturb that every four years, and they say the sand kind of goes back down in there and uh, replenishes itself. So they are not too pleased about this new Biden administration interpretation. Uh, Tim Buckland, however, very adamantly says that this will not be a problem until at least 2035 when our authorizations as mandated back in the 80s run out and expire. This is a generous interpretation of how this is going to work, I think, because uh, the Fish and Wildlife, which is sort of under the Department of Interior, it's assigned as the enforcer role for this COBRA law. They call us out specifically in their frequently asked questions document on this new interpretation. They say, you know, it's our understanding that uh, these two beach projects that have been doing this COBRA thing, that they have not yet been funded effective immediately. No projects that do it that way will be able to be funded. So there's some ambiguity on how you can read that, but it might be difficult to now procure this funding that we have lost and are still trying to get back because of this change or it might not matter at all. It's too early to say right now. Yeah, uh, I I am tickled that this all sort of goes back to the 80s and that there really is no end game that I'm aware of after 2035. One step at a time, yeah. One step at a time, sure. Well, um, is, that, is that the latest? Is that where we're at right now? So where, where we're at right now is the United States Army Corps is going to sort of be put in a position here where they're going to sort of take a side between um, the status quo on these local projects that has been 
occurring and the fish and wildlife side of things, which is, you know, adamantly speaking out against uh, this using sand of the Cobra Zone. So now it comes down to the Army Corps to weigh in here and they're going to have to say, okay, we're going to change how we do it immediately or we're going to give them until 2035 and then reassess the status quo. So again, uh, that's up to them. They've yet to uh, comment on that. And uh, I think it's worth noting, too, that, uh, you know, I, I was sending some emails back and forth with a group of fish and wildlife people. Uh, I, I asked them a question about how this would uh, uh, affect us, our beaches. They they pointed me towards a public document that had already been released. And I said, thank you. I've seen that. Uh, I'm specifically asking if we will be able to continue doing uh, coastal storm damage reduction as we've been doing it until 2035 and got no response from that end. So it it seems like some stuff is still being worked out here. As is often the case. Uh, Well, Preston Lennon, uh, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, I appreciate it, Ben. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition of The Newsroom. I want to thank our guests, Andre Brown and Will Connect, Les High and Sarah Nagum, and Preston Lennon. Also thanks to our technical team, Ken Campbell and Jonathan Furnell. If you missed part of this program, you can find it at whqr.org. And if you missed the Friday show, you can catch a Sunday rebroadcast at 1 p.m., followed by Coastline. You can also now find it as a podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts, where you can also find Coastline and soon our new collaborative podcast with WECT, Port City Politics. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Shockman. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom.